Welcome to the Start Over Coder podcast. I am the Start Over Coder, and I am taking you along on my quest, taking up a new career as a professional developer and pursuing financial independence. Today's episode is the third in a series of three about how I FI and what I am doing to reach financial independence. And in the last two episodes, I talked a bit about how I learned about the concept of FI in the first place, explained a little bit about what I knew beforehand, which like many people, I think was really not that much. I didn't really know really hardly anything about managing my personal finances at all. But over the past 10 months or so, since I first discovered the whole idea and the concept, I have been doing a lot and learning a lot to put a plan in place for myself. And so that's what today's episode is all about. And I basically identified 10 high level actions or things that I've either already done or do regularly still. So let's get started on those 10 things. Number one is knowing what my expenses are. So reaching financial independence is solely a function of how much you need, how much money you need to spend each year. And FI and retirement, all of that can, I think, sound a little bit intimidating and like a really, really huge goal because, you know, at least before I really understood the math behind it, I assumed that that meant I needed literally millions and millions of dollars But what I've discovered is that the general rule of thumb or back of the envelope kind of calculation is that you need 25 times your annual expenses saved up in order to be considered financially independent. And for me, I like to be a little bit on the conservative side. So I personally say 30 times my annual expenses would be ideal. So that is a lot of money. I'm not saying it's not, but if It also means that if you've got your expenses down low, then while it is a lot of money, it's not as much as necessarily like millions and millions of dollars. So for example, if you have a house that someone just decided to give to you, you don't have that expense. Let's say you've got a car, same thing, you don't have to pay for that. And you know, all of those big expenses are taken care of and you only need $10,000 a year to cover your expenses. I know that's not very much for a lot of people, But for an example's sake, let's just say you need $10,000 a year. That means in order to consider yourself financially independent, you only need to save up $300,000, which yes, that is a lot of money, but it's definitely not millions and millions. So understanding the math really does help figure out uh, what you need in order to be financially independent which just to redefine, if you didn't listen to the last two episodes in this series, being financially independent just means having enough passive income or income that you're not working hours for your money in order to pay for whatever your expenses are for that year. So like I said, if your expenses are low, that means achieving financial independence can come a lot faster. And for me personally, I don't anticipate my expenses being as low as $10,000 a year, uh, at least not in you know the Western countries that I am grown accustomed to living in. But I do need to know what that annual expenses amount is going to be if I'm going to figure out how much I need to save. So in order to do that, number one thing is knowing what my expenses are. And to do that, I basically track my spending in uh, software. So I use a program called Banktivity, which lets me have all of my accounts there and I I just every time I spend money, I put it in. Banktivity is very similar to Quicken, which I also used for a long time before I switched to having a Mac computer. I just find that Banktivity is a little bit better on Mac than what the reviews and things said for Quicken. So they're basically the same thing, but I record and categorize literally everything that I spend. And it sounds 
maybe annoying to you. It's actually habit for me because I've been doing it since I was a freshman in college. And that is literally because when I bought a new computer, a new laptop to go away to college, it came with free Quicken software and that got me hooked on it for life. And I found it to be really helpful for no, you know, I was away from home for the first time and literally didn't know anything or very little about managing money and making sure that I could kind of support myself while I was away from home. So it was actually really helpful at the time. And then since then, it's just become habit and I have gotten used to it. So I'm on my computer anyway, usually at the end of the day when I get home from work or just going out or whatever. And so it's literally just a matter of taking sometimes not even two minutes to look at the receipts of what I've spent that day add those amounts into the software and it just tracks my expenses that way. It is possible in the software to have it go in automatically, but personally, I just like to do it myself so I can see uh, exactly what I'm spending and just have that awareness. But the main benefit of having you know, a record of everything that I've spent is that it really does help me annualize my spending. So I see not just month to month, but I see where all of my money is going all the time. And that is really helpful for figuring out how much I need overall in order to reach financial independence. And it also helps me see, because it's categorized, you know, where the money is going, I can see kind of what levels of financial independence I'm going towards. So when am I, you know, how much do I need to reach financial independence just for the basics? So just for my housing, my transportation, um, insurance, taxes, whatever. But then also... How much do I need for what I really am going for, which is full financial independence, where also that's covering my vacations and all of my other fun things, going out all the time, eating out, things like that. So knowing where the money is going, having that tracked record of my expenses really helps me figure out how I'm going on the journey of you know becoming financially independent and uh, what I maybe also can improve upon. So like, am I spending too much on this or am I spending too much on that? Having that record, knowing where my money is going is literally the most important thing, I think, to help me reach this big goal. And if this is something that you're interested in, you know, I'm not going for the rest of this episode, I'm really not going to say what you should or shouldn't do, but this is the one thing that you should do. And the number one most important step for anybody who wants to get control over their finances. And yes, I do recognize that my style of tracking literally everything that I spend is probably a little bit too much for a lot of people and maybe not realistic to actually do that every single day. Uh, There are other options. So you can use a program like Mint, which is linked to your bank account and credit card accounts or what have you, uh, it will automatically track anything except cash. And you can, of course, input cash as well manually. Or if you don't want to do it kind of forever, you could just pick a month or I would probably do a quarter so or even a year, but you know, at least a short, shorter amount of time than forever to literally just go through the exercise of tracking everything. And that way, at least you have an idea to base things off of if you want to see where and how you can become financially independent. Uh, You don't have to use software or a website. You can even just do this with pen and paper and a calculator. Or if you make the choice to do all of your spending with one credit card, say, you can then use that statement to see where your money is going. 
or some people go even farther than I do and do this manually on a spreadsheet. But I really do think that to manage your money, that is literally the number one thing that you have to do is know where your money is going already, because that will then help you make decisions on how you maybe want to make changes. Or if it's fine, then it's fine. And maybe you just need to earn more or maybe, you know, whatever decision you need to make in order to reach that goal is going to be nearly impossible, probably impossible, but it's going to be definitely a lot harder to do if you don't know where your money is going. So that's number one is knowing my expenses. Number two thing that I do is knowing my net worth. So this means that I have added up all of my assets, all of my bank accounts, retirement accounts, etc. I have then separately added up all of my debts. So that's credit cards, student loans, car loan, etc. Take those two numbers, subtract the debts from the assets, and then that is my net worth. And in doing this, it very well could be a negative number. You know, that's not ideal, but it is fine because the important thing is knowing the starting place to see how much you need to do, what you need to do in order to accomplish the overall goal of reaching that target financial independence number. And I recently, because I do have all of this information and spending data going back to college, I recently did a historical net worth for myself. And from the first year that I had data, my net worth was $35, which is great. Uh, Unfortunately, it went super, super downhill from there with all of my student loans and really a lot of thoughtless spending. Well, not thoughtless spending, because I did think about what I was spending my money on, but it was just completely undirected. I didn't really have any goals. I didn't have any savings goals. I wasn't trying to get rid of my student loans that quickly. So it was just like totally, you know, doing whatever everybody else was doing kind of spending, which wasn't super helpful. So my net worth went down, 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 but it's fine because it's nice to also then see once I have a little bit more knowledge to also then see it go up and hopefully we'll we'll continue to do that from here. The number three thing that I do is have zero, zero debt. So there was a great blog post that I read on Mr. Money Mustache's blog about how it's really important to treat debt as an emergency. And I'm going to link to that blog post in the show notes because reading through that and having an explanation of that was a huge catalyst for me in really aggressively trying to get rid of the student loan debt that I had. And I think the biggest reason for that is because if you have debt, you're literally paying someone just for the ability to have that debt. And it's not something that I personally thought about really at all before I sort of informed myself about all of these different topics. And I looked at the tax statements recently and saw that in some years I was paying almost $10,000 a year just to service my student loans in the interest payments that I was paying. So if I had gotten rid of it sooner, I would have saved so, so much money. It's kind of sad to think about now. But now that I do have a little bit more information about this, last year I did make a huge, huge effort to get rid of it. I saved as much as possible. I also had some really uh, nice little surprises like an unexpected bonus come in from work and then I sold some stocks that I had kind of experimented with when I was uninformed. So I did all of these things to pay off my debt and got rid of it last year which was really amazing and huge for me. So now the goal really is to just continue to have zero debt so I'm not adding anything new that I can't pay off within that month. Will I always be that way? I'm not sure. You know, it would be nice to maybe own a property someday or, you know, there are all kinds of reasons why one might add more debt. So I'm not saying I'm completely against it, but definitely a goal is to carry as little debt, if not zero debt, for as long as possible, if not forever. 
Number four is having an emergency fund. So now that I have all of these plans in place, I really don't want anything unexpected to derail those plans. And it is so easy, you know, it's just kind of basic life that if something is possible that it can go wrong, there's a good chance that it will go wrong and you just really can't do anything about some of these things if something happens. So the way to get around that having a devastating effect on my financial independence plans is to keep an emergency stash of cash. So the recommended amount is three to six months worth of expenses saved in cash, easily accessible liquid cash. For me, since I don't know what my job plans are and career plans are for the near future, I have just been putting everything I possibly can into cash to give myself the most flexibility in the long term so that if I end up without a steady income income W-2 job for a year, then, you know, hopefully I can cover myself for that long. I don't have quite that much saved up, but you know, that's the goal to give myself as much flexibility as possible. So having an emergency fund is definitely high up there. And depending on kind of the security of a person's situation, that's maybe having a little bit more cash than less. And I think that's where I find myself right now. Number five is to do with spending. So the number one thing is really saving before spending. So knowing your expenses is certainly very important for reaching financial independence goals, but savings is the flip side of that. You've also got to actually save the money that you're not spending. So I personally make it automatic so that I don't have to think about it. I don't like having to think about these things that regularly. So, you know, I'm working a normal nine to five job right now. I have a paycheck and I split it. So the majority is deposited straight into savings and I literally don't see it. A small amount goes into a checking account. So I opened a Chase Bank checking account in order to get a bonus that they were doing. And so for that account, I have to have a minimum $500 a month deposited as direct deposit. So I literally just have that $500 go into that account and then use that for my spending. Some months I don't even spend the $500 in like kind of discretionary extra spending. Some months I do need to take a little bit out of savings. So because I'm t literally physically taking, well not physically, but because I'm literally transferring it from savings to this checking account in order to pay for whatever extra things that I'm spending, it's a conscious decision. So if I'm actually spending more than that $500, a month, then I'm going to be very aware of it. So doing that automatic deposit into savings for me has been really helpful in making sure that I'm saving first before spending anything else. And then I should say that's also on top of deposits to my uh, 401k through work. So I'm definitely meeting the match that my company makes, but then I also put quite a bit extra. So I think right now I'm at basically altogether between my contribution and my company's contribution is 20% of my salary is going into the 401k. And I could probably, inc I mean, I could increase that but again, because of the uncertainty about what I am doing in life and in my job, I wanted to kind of save as much as possible in cash. So that is how that automatic split is happening. Number six, again, to do with spending is optimizing really big expenses. So if you ask a lot of financial independence and personal finance bloggers, the big three categories that most people's income, most of it goes to are housing, transportation, and food. So I really have made an effort to optimize those to make them cost as little as I can in most cases. So first of all, with transportation, I now live in a city where I personally would not want to not have a car. Also for background, it is a place where it feels like 
everybody has a flashy new shiny car and it's a place where you know the people that i work with and interact with most regularly a lot of them lease their cars so you know they've got a new car every couple of or every few years and i used to do that myself i had a lease and had a car payment but i looked at it coming back and saw that, you know, that's a monthly expense that I don't want to have. Plus, if you're leasing a new car, then the car insurance is more expensive. You know, you've got to keep it up and make it, make sure that it stays nice for the lease and all of these things. So it actually costs more to service a new car than it would to just own a used car. So that's what I did. I bought a used hybrid. So I have no monthly payment. I bought it just outright. And because it's a hybrid, it gets like 47 miles to the gallon. So I have less expenses for fuel. I also pay car insurance, but because it's an older car, I think it's a little bit less than, you know, if I were trying to insure a newer car. So that's how I manage my transportation where I live now. I did used to live in a city where I didn't need a car and very gladly didn't have a car. So in London, you can buy an annual Oyster card, which is like the travel card to use the public transport. And you can buy it up front for the year and get a lower rate. Now, it is a lot of money, but I, through my company, they had this program. And I think actually quite a few companies have a similar program where they basically give you an interest-free loan and take the monthly deduction from your paycheck. So I was paying the annual price, but just paying it monthly. And so that was the way that I found to save on travel costs there. The second of the big three is housing. And again, this was a little bit easier for me because when I moved from the UK to where I live now, I had the opportunity to kind of optimize this decision. And I, you know, when I first learned about these things, I wasn't in a place where I could break my lease or, you know, move to a cheaper place. So I do recognize that, you know, you've got to kind of have the chance to make this better, but I did do that. So when I moved to where I live now, I had the idea about where I wanted to live and I knew my minimum standards. Um, and what I found was that I was able to do what some people might call compromising, uh, but I didn't really look at it that way. So, you know, kind of standard where I live now is to have central air, so central air conditioning and heating, a covered place to park your car because everybody likes to keep their flashy new cars bright and shiny and, you know, out of the sun, out of the dirt, and, you know, things like marble countertops and all of these things. A few months before I moved to where I live now, I went on this amazing trip to Madagascar where I was literally living in tents at times, uh, no electricity except for like four hours a day. So my standards of living is, you know, pretty, I think it's pretty high, but I think some people think that it's even higher than it needs to be, or at least than I think it needs to be. So I was able to find a place that is five minutes down the road from rentals that have all of those things like central air, covered car, marble countertops, etc. But I am paying 30% less than them because I don't have those things. Not to mention the fact that because I don't have central air or, you know, things that uh, cost a lot of money monthly, my utilities are also lower. So that was how I chose to optimize my housing. And it's really made a difference in my monthly expenses. And then the third of the big three is food. So personally, I made the decision that I am just going to spend whatever it costs for healthy quality foods. Um, I do cook a lot myself, so I know what I'm eating and I'm making sure that what I do eat is as nutritious as possible. But sometimes, yes, it is a little bit more expensive. That said, what I usually cook is 
pretty much always less expensive than like packaged and prepared foods. So if you have the willingness to learn to cook for yourself, then, you know, you can actually probably eat better and cheaper by just buying foods and making them yourself. But even so, yes, sometimes it is a little, little bit more expensive than kind of lower quality foods. And it's probably an area that I could reduce my spending in, but I've just decided for myself not to do that. So outside of the big three, and this is moving on to the number seven thing that I do for reaching financial independence, is uh, spending wisely in general outside of those big three areas. So this is where it can get a little bit tricky, I fully admit. Uh, for me, though, because I have the bigger goal and know kind of what my overarching goals are as far as lifestyle and what I get value out of, it actually isn't as hard for me to not spend money on things that are nice to have and that honestly most people I know have as part of their lives, but I personally just don't get value from. So a good example of that is like a cable package and I'm perfectly fine without it. So having a very clear sense of what brings value to my life makes it a lot easier to spend or not spend when it comes to discretionary money. Now, another thing that kind of fits into this category is budgeting. Personally, I don't budget at all. I think it's just a lot of work and I am just going to not necessarily stick to a budget. So while I have my expenses clearly categorized and know where the money's going, ahead of time, I don't feel that I really need to put limits on myself as to where and what I can spend on because I know that I'm saving first. I know that my big expenses are as low as possible. And so I just don't put that pressure on myself. Now, that said, spending is entirely all about self-control. And so what works for me may not work for other people. And if you do need to make a budget, then there's obviously nothing wrong with that and you should do it. If you will overspend on a credit card, like that's one thing I do to earn rewards points for travel and things like that. I do the majority of my spending on a credit card and pay it off in full each month. If you know for yourself that you can't have a credit card and not overspend, then don't use one. So, you know, there's nothing wrong with any approach to spending is all about, I think, making it work with what your personal habits are and what's going to work for your own situation. You know, some people literally take physical cash and put it into envelopes. And then once that envelope is done for the month, then that's their budget on that thing for the month. And that from the blogs that I've read and, you know, stories I've heard, that works really, really well for some people. So personally, I don't do it, but I don't think there's anything wrong with it if that is going to help you reach your overall goal. Number eight thing that I do is invest wisely, uh, but also flip side, don't think about it too much if I can help it. So last week I talked about a book that I read where I learned about how to kind of split up your investments and make sure that the money that you are saving is earning as much money as it possibly can. And so that, as I said, is uh, referred to as your asset allocation. And the goal there is really diversification, um, having a split of stocks to bonds. And then within the stocks, having a split of domestic versus international, maybe some emerging markets, etc. So to kind of give the short story, the short version of this, I basically have a split of 42.5% in U.S. domestic stocks, 42.5% in international, that's both developed international and emerging markets, and then 15% in bonds. 
all of the investments are in index funds and they are all low fee index funds. So the highest fee that I pay on any of the funds that I have in my personal portfolio in the US, the highest is 0.14%. In the UK, the expense ratios are a little bit higher. So I think the highest I pay there is 0.4%. But the key there is, you know, below 1%. 1% would be a lot, actually. So uh, keeping those fees as low as possible to make sure that all the money that I do have invested ultimately is going to be mine, ideally. Also, as I mentioned before, it's an automatic contribution. The funds selected are automatic. So anytime I make a new contribution through my you know, work deposits or what have you, where those funds are being allocated is automatic. Also, when quarterly dividends come out, that's also automatically being reinvested. So my goal really is to literally pretty much never interact with my investments at all. Just keep adding to it and watching them grow. Now, that said, rebalancing is uh, necessary at times. So for me, if any single category goes plus or minus 5% from its target, that's when I would rebalance. So that is something to be aware of. And while that's my personal asset allocation for right now, there are other areas for improvement. So right now, I would say I'm definitely over-invested in retirement age accounts, you know, accounts that I can't access that money until I turn 65 or 69 and a half in some cases. And that's not ideal because I plan to retire well before that age. So depending on my outcome in the next couple of months for my own job and what I'm going to be doing, that's a shift that I definitely plan to make to put more into those taxable accounts so that I will have accounts that will generate income for me well before I turn 65. So that's the plan now. Definitely areas of improvement to be made and, uh, you know, obviously do whatever is going to work best for you with knowledge. You know, you've got to study up on these things and kind of have a sense about what you're doing before you just kind of pick a random number or copy someone else's. Uh, Number nine is getting help often. So the biggest, biggest choice that I made in this area was deciding to hire a financial advisor. And I don't actually think it's necessary for most people if you're willing to kind of read the books and, you know, ask for advice and blogs and forums and things like that. But I personally had so many questions that bloggers and forums and, you know, other people just couldn't answer just from the simple fact of being a citizen in one country, having accounts and retirement plans and things in another country and mixing all of those things with taxes and all that. So I found a fee-only planner who works with expats. Um, She's actually location independent herself. So she is, her business is based in the U.S., but she lives in, well, she's lived in a few different places since I even started working with her. So very specific situation. Um, But for me, I just found that it's really helpful to have someone with all of these complicated situations to have someone who can kind of sense check my decision. So is the asset allocation that I've decided on okay or is it not? And that's a perfect example. Originally, after reading the Four Pillars of Investing book that I talked about last week, I had a quite conservative asset allocation and was kind of overly investing in bonds for my age group and risk area. Um, And that was one thing that she told me, you know, you really 
are better off in the long run, most likely if you increase your percent of your investments in stocks. So that was one thing that was really helpful. Also, she helps make fund choices in each country where I have the ability to invest in different funds. She lets me know about tax considerations with different contributions and, you know, foreign earned income and all these things that I have to think about because of my particular situation. Also, with all of these thoughts about switching careers and potentially being unemployed for a period of time, she has been super helpful in planning and making sure I'm thinking of everything that I need to for that uh, potential scenario. So a perfect example, picking health insurance in my current job, picking one that is going to be okay when I go into a COBRA situation where I don't have health insurance being provided for me and I have to pay for it myself. So things like that. She's been super helpful in making making sure that I'm considering all of the things that I should be considering. And it's just really helpful to have somebody who can advise those choices. Yes, it is an expense, but for me, one that I think is worth it in the long run. But I think the key there is making sure that it is a fee-only advisor, not somebody who is going to personally benefit from the choices or recommendations that they make as far as earning or charging a percentage of the money that they're investing and making sure that it's somebody who's familiar with your own personal situation. So in my case, that international expat aspect. But it's not just about hiring somebody to do it. As I said, I don't actually think it's necessary. You know, if everything that I had was in the U.S., I probably wouldn't have a financial advisor because there is so much information out there. So I definitely keep up to date on some very key blogs and podcasts. So my top four are the Mad Scientist blog and podcast, Martinis in Your Money podcast, Mr. Money Mustache blog, and the Choose FI podcast. Just getting information constantly from each of those resources has been so helpful in thinking about ways that I can optimize my own situation, questions to ask my financial advisor, questions to ask other people, etc. So making sure that, yes, get the information up front, like I talked about in last week's episode, but also continue to stay up to date with what is going on and what people are thinking and talking about in the financial independence world. And finally, number 10 thing that I do to work towards financial independence is keeping the long game in mind. So one thing I haven't mentioned at all in this episode is income, but obviously that is a big part of the equation. And with the Start Over Coder project in general, it's a huge part of the consideration for the jobs that I might do as a developer. You know, am I going to have to take a pay cut in order to go in and kind of start at that junior level? Or if that is the case, and maybe that doesn't quite fit in my overall goals of financial independence, then maybe it's being a developer and doing that kind of as a side business for side income. And then it's on top of my salary for the job that I already have. So that all plays into this whole, not only, you know, what I'm doing with this podcast and what I'm doing with my life, but it income definitely plays into a big part of achieving financial independence and keeping that long-term goal or long-term eye on what the income is going to be and is currently is really, really important. Also, in terms of the long term, it's remembering why I'm doing all of this in the first place. So for me, I don't look at it as just future enjoyment. It's not like I work really hard for these 15, 10, 20 years or so, and then go get to sit on the beach at the end. The whole point of being financially independent is to be able to enjoy my life from day to day. And I want to be able to do that now. So it 
that means keeping valuable expenses in my current scenario. It's not just saving every single penny, but making sure that what I do spend money on is providing value. And so that means that I do spend on experiences and things that will make my life healthier and better and easier and just, you know, make all of life enjoyable because the the long-term goal of this is life enjoyment. So not every single choice is going to be a financial one. And that is definitely important to keep in mind. And then also thinking to the long term, something that is probably on the horizon for many people right now, you know, the market as a whole, the economy has been going up, 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 up for longer than most periods of increasing market returns. So a lot of people say, and I tend to agree that we're kind of due for the economy to tank for a little while. And so having that long-term goal of retiring and having sustainable income for decades is key to think about when it does tank, because honestly, that is an opportunity to buy more investments at a cheaper price. So having that kind of mental capacity for bad news when it comes to my investments and the economy is also part of kind of keeping the long game in mind. So lots of things to consider there. And overall, it's a big picture, but working on each of these things kind of piece by piece I think is help going to help me reach financial independence at some point. So that's going to wrap it up for this episode. It's a bit longer than normal, but I wanted to give the full picture, even if I just kind of briefly touched on each of those 10 areas. And if any of these are interesting to you and you want to hear more about them, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know whether it's, you know, talking about a topic a little bit more in depth in a future episode. I would love to do that and I uh, would like to do more of these financial independence episodes in the future. Or if you just want to have a chat about something, have questions about something, do get in contact. So you can leave a comment on the Start Overcoder website under this episode. There will be a link directly to that page in the show notes, or you can uh, send me an email, startovercoder at gmail.com or tweet me at startovercoder. And if you like what you hear and want to stay with me on this journey of learning to code, starting a new career, and pursuing financial independence, be sure to subscribe to this podcast. You can do it just about anywhere podcasts are available or visit startovercoder.com slash subscribe for a list of options. And that is all for this time. Signing off.